Okay, let's get started. <clears throat> years ago, um, Esther and I were children's pastors. We were children's pastors for, for years. And we used to do these um, songs with puppets. It was kind of our thing we were na- known for. And these things were always a hit. Um, so for starter, we would always take the super cheesy like church puppets that they always have. And we would take them home and completely break them down. We'd pull their eyes off and remove their hair. And then we would put like sunglasses on them and mohawks and like these really cool headgear, headwear, stuff like that, and make them cool. And then we would go shopping for like super cool baby clothes, like leather jackets and, and crazy stuff. And we would dress these puppets like rock stars. So we'd turn them into these really cool kind of rock star um, puppets. And, uh, and we had this kind of elaborate stage that was made of curtains at a lower part wrapped in curtains and an upper part that was curtained. And, um, and the people in the front, the lower people, would lip sync the song. So it looked like they were singing. We'd have two or three. We'd have backup singers doing like doo-wop stuff and, and the lead singer, you know. And then in the back, we had backup dancers, which was the, the everybody's favorite part. We'd have four or five puppets back there. And they would... Um, and they would do these like perfectly synchronized movements. You know, they would start by kind of swaying together back and forth. Everybody would, so all the puppets were swaying together and they would move. And it was always perfectly synchronized and set to the music. And what you couldn't see was the five full grown bodies behind the curtain, you know, bumping into each other, kind of making this, uh, this thing work. And, uh, and we did enough of these. Um, that the moves had to keep getting more and more elaborate and more and more crazy. We even made legs for them, so we got these little kid pants and we and these uh, and some dowel rods, like curtain rods, and we would put the dowel rods in the pants and staple kids' shoes to the bottom of the dowel rods, and so that the puppets could do a backflip. So when their head would go over, then their feet would come around, and uh, so it looked like the puppets themselves were doing a backflip behind the thing. And so these things kept getting crazier and crazier, and we kept trying to to dream up more and more stuff we could do with puppets. And, uh, <clears throat> and we would do these in front of the grown-ups sometimes. Everybody loved them. They were crazy. And this is what I got the nickname Puppet Nazi during this time. They even made me a T-shirt that said Puppet Nazi. They made me wear everywhere because as we would um, practice these things, every time I'd come and say, we're going to do another puppet song, everybody would be like, oh, no. You know, because uh, the kids loved them, but everybody else doing them. You had to work these things for a long time. And usually, because I was the one running the service, I wasn't behind the curtain with my arm in the air. So I was like, so they would do them. I would watch. And I had this famous line that, it, that got me the name where they would finish. and be like, you guys are awesome. That was amazing. Great job. You were this close to perfection. Like, you were so close. Let's run it one more time. And, uh, and they got, uh, so then, you know, that became the big joke. You're this Close to perfection. So every time I'd bring this up, everybody would start to groan, and we're going to do a new song. They'd start calling me the puppet Nazi and make me wear my shirt. I had to wear my shirt to every practice so that they, so I was owning that, uh, that that was me. But I came by it honestly. Like, uh, I, uh, when I was a senior in high school, I had what had to be closest to the, to the most perfect football game I'd ever played. I, uh, I had over 20 tackles, five or six sacks. There was two times that I was in the backfield so fast none of us knew what we were doing. I actually took the handoff from the quarterback once because I got there before the running back did. Like he put the ball out and I just grabbed it and I like ran with it. It was amazing. And then there was once I was standing back there and the quarterback was still kind of half under center and I had a hold of his jersey. <laughs> like I don't know what was happening, but it felt like I was Superman with like super speed. At the time that I grabbed his jersey though, he like like ducked under me and got away, which is kind of a bummer, but but uh, my dad and I had this practice where after every game, all the, all the other players would go 
you know, to the uh, to Pizza Hut usually and, and hang out after the game. And I would go home. I always wanted to go home because my dad and I would sit down and break down the game. We'd sit down and just analyze, which usually meant him telling me all the times I messed up. And well, that one time you were supposed to go there, I just could tell you went the wrong way. Like it was his way of saying I watched you. I was watching you mess up you know with basically like i had a really big head in high school and i'm pretty sure my dad thought it was his like his job to like keep me tethered to the ground like and uh which it probably was but this night i was excited because i was like there is absolutely nothing that he can pick on tonight i crushed it and uh and so i uh you know i rushed home i actually got home a little bit early and and uh as i rolled in the driveway ran up the outside stairs i opened the front door and before i could close it behind me I hear this voice from the living room go, boy, that slippery little booger got away from you that one time, didn't he? <laughs> like, you were this close to perfect. You were this close to perfect. And isn't that the human condition? On our best days, our most amazing days, our most unbelievable days are still only this close to perfect. We never quite have it right. It's almost as if this desire for perfection is somehow wired in us and and no matter how close we get, we're, we're never quite experiencing it. It's almost like something in our far back genetics going way, way, way back experienced perfection, maybe, and then lost it. And we still have that loss kind of in our souls. And of course, that's exactly what happened. We're continuing uh, our series this week titled The Game of Life. We started this series um, and we look, we're looking at what, in light of Easter, what real resurrection life is supposed to look like. We started with a, a look at this long and strange history that the Bible lays out between this decision between life and death. Uh, we found that all through human history, at every juncture between God and his people, he's offering us the same choice between death and life. In fact, it's probably safe to say that this choice sums up human existence. This is what it's about. God offered Adam and Eve two roads, one leading to perfection, characterized by a tree of life, and another leading to this broken existence called death. And of course, our earliest predecessors chose death. And since that fateful day, every time God has moved to establish a new connection with his people, uh, whereby he can be with them and they be his people and he be their God, it comes with this same choice. Moses said, I offer you this day death and life. Oh, that you would choose life. And John told us the entire reason he wrote his gospel, his, his version of the Jesus story, was that we may have life. Well, last week we dealt with our dead relation with God. We talked about how in the garden God showed up after Adam and Eve had sinned. Uh, and Adam and Eve, the, the very first humans, for the first time ever, hid from God. They'd never had the instinct to do this before. They had always run to God. And for the first time, they hide from him. Jesus tells a story as he's pouring himself into Samaria about this father who runs to embrace his lost son who had returned to him. He found that uh, that this turned out to be this deeply prophetic moment where Jesus was doing exactly what Ezekiel said the Messiah would do. And we also found that this broken relationship with God is healed and redeemed by the grace of God in Christ. When we turn to God, we, we stop hiding. We don't find an adversary or even a boss who wants to hire us to work for him. We find a loving father who celebrates our return. We come asking for like a cup of grace 
And he does the whole ice bucket challenge of grace on us. Like the song says, if grace was an ocean, we're all sinking. Well, this week we're going to be treating with the, the second relationship to die when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Actually, chronologically, this is the one that shows up first. It was the very first death we read about in Genesis. But really, we don't have a chance of experiencing life in this relationship if we have not restored our relationship with God, which is why we did it a little bit out of order. But I think this relationship, the relationship with ourself, is where we uh, most feel the deep sense that no matter how good we are, we're never quite enough. You're this close to perfect. We call this shame. Adam and Eve felt it the second they disobeyed God. It says they ate the fruit and looked down and did not like what they saw. They felt the need to cover up, to hide behind fig leaves. They were no longer comfortable in their own skin. And wow, this is a powerful brokenness. We're titling this, me- this message, Move One Step In, in our game of life. We're going to look again at a parable that Jesus taught. But I feel like Jesus offers this odd but powerful antidote to shame that I'd like to unpack. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, if you want to follow in your Bible. But the words will be on the screen if not. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by a story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they used his money. The servant whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more bags and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, and now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you've given me two bags of silver to invest. I earned two more. The master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with handling this small amount, and now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, if you knew... I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate. Why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from the servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they're given, even more will be given. And they will have abundance. But to those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. This is uh, uh, 
This is classically called the parable of the talents. Um, because in most versions, um, they translate these bags of silver as talents, which is kind of unfortunate because the, a talent was a measure of money. It was a currency um, when it was originally written. Uh, but it's so easily confused with the English word like talents, like we're each given a certain number of gifts and talents. And it, it can kind of extend that far, but it's not really um, what was happening here. But... Um, but we call this the parable of the talents. And, and this parable is one of those parables that I think really nails the idea of a parable because it's specific enough to kind of cut across human nature and confront us right where we live, but also vague enough to be extended into uh, and, and flexible to be used in a lot of different settings and times. Um, and I would love to right off the bat um, point out the way Jesus sets this up as if he was trying to, to trigger almost every human heart. Especially in our day. Um, when you think about the main point of this parable, the main point of this parable seems to be uh, this third guy. The, the, the guy who does nothing. Um, the other two just kind of double their money. Which, which kind of begs the question, why did Jesus point out how they each got different amounts of money? Like, you would, you would, this parable would still work if they all got the same amount of money. Two invested and doubled and one did nothing. The parable is the same, except it doesn't have that emotional feature that I think Jesus was looking for that would really capture the heart. Because what I think Jesus was doing was telling it this way because Jesus understood Instagram. That's what I think was going on, right? You know what we do. You, we, we scroll and we look at other people's babies and dogs and we compare. That's what we do. We compare. And don't pretend like you don't do it. If you're on Instagram, I know I know you do it. So don't play holy just because it's Sunday. You see that person's picture on Instagram and their house is clean and their kids are coloring quietly in the background and they have a, this awesome Bible verse on their coffee mug and their Bible is open on the table. Right? You, you know you do it. That old familiar shame creeps in. Right? Because you're hiding under a blanket and your kids are currently screaming at each other because one of them called the other one his name and you find that a relief because before they were doing that, they were painting the living room in chocolate. And so at least screaming at each other, they're not being destructive. And you're trying to figure out if you even have a Bible anymore or if the kids ate it. And, and you're trying to decide if you should crawl out from under the blanket long enough to find your glass of wine that you left somewhere. And all you can think is, man, they've got it together. They've got it together. And look how messy my life is. It's like your heart says, that person got ten bags of silver and I only got one. It's what we do. We compare. I think Jesus told the story the way he did because he knew how much we love to compare ourselves. And boy, oh boy, if there's anything that feeds that inner voice of shame, it's comparison. From the moment humanity's relationship with itself died, there has been this deep and abiding ache that says, I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough, thin enough, rich enough, strong enough, quick enough, pretty enough, lucky enough, organized enough. I'm not enough. But that person on Instagram, boy, they've got it together. They're enough. I mean, look at how authentic that Bible verse looks on their coffee cup. I bet they're listening to Caleb. (laughs) I think Jesus set up this story this way because he knew every human heart well enough to know that when we heard this story, we were all going to see ourselves in that third person. Nobody reads this story and goes, yeah, I'm like the one dude with the five talents. None of us do that. 
And he knew that. He knew if I, I he understood shame to the point that he said, if I, if I break this into to somebody who got a lot, somebody who got some, somebody who got a little, everybody is going to see themselves in that third person, which is where I think he wanted us to be. And, and don't we do that? We look at those other two and we're like, show off. I hate people like that. <laughs> Jesus knew that we're all the same. None of us think of ourselves as the guy with five bags of silver. We see ourselves as this third guy. That's our guy. That's the human guy. That's the guy we understand. And the master gave this guy one bag of silver and the servant gets scared and buries it. He says, I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. There's an interesting thing that Jesus is doing here that I'm going to tell you just for the fun of it. It has nothing to do with our sermon today, so this one's for free. But um, there's this line in the Talmud where the the, Jew, the rabbinical commentary on the Torah where the, the rabbis were debating usury, which is the use of... Of, uh, of loaning money with interest. It's forbidden in the, in the Torah for Jews to, to use usury, to loan money with interest. You're supposed to loan freely and, uh, and receive back. You're not supposed to use. So there's a lot of debate on what that means in the, in the first century culture because a lot of the money you would borrow was, was from Roman um, money lenders and, and so they would debate, can you borrow money with usury or, as long as you don't charge it? Or, or is that bad too? And some said... You can, uh, yeah, you can borrow money with usury. You just can't charge usury. Others were saying no because that's investing in a in a broken system that that offends Taurus. You can't even do that. And there's a big long debate about it. And the, and there's one really famous um, rabbi who said, if you want to obey Torah, the only safe place for your money, money can only be kept safe by putting it in the earth. He actually said that. It was a well known saying in Jesus' day. Money can only be kept safe by putting it in the earth. So it seems like Jesus is kind of intentionally in this story when he has this third servant bury his money in the earth. It's almost like Jesus has this guy obey the rabbis and then yells at him for it. Which means nothing to my sermon today. I just love it whenever I find that Jesus had like an ornery sense of humor. Anytime I can catch Jesus kind of being uh, being coy or or, uh, or sarcastic or snotty with the Pharisees, I, I get tickled. And I... And I have to share those sometimes. All right. Back to the stuff that matters to us. This servant, in his fear, does nothing with the money the master gives him. And he gets severely punished for it. Uh, and man, it's a weird twist. Um, in fact, this passage gets a lot of critique from kind of the social justice um, theologians because the guy who already has gets more. And that really bugs social justice people. You know, they're like, they're like the gospel is supposed to be fair for everybody. And, and, uh, and if we're honest, um, you have to be pretty heartless to not be, to not have at least a little bit of a problem with this passage. Cause it's not like the guy who took the master's money and went and bought beer with it. Like he like, he was afraid of losing it, you know? And, and, and it's not like he went and, Bought scratcher tickets with the whole thing, you know. Um, which <laughs> I've got the scratcher ticket story. Don't judge me, okay? This was a long time ago. We were when I when I was framing houses. Um, we uh, it was raining on us one day, and according to the weatherman, it was supposed to blow over. So we were just we went to the gas station that had this little cafe in it. We were just kind of 
ducking in for a minute while we're waiting for the rain to blow over so we could go back to work. And, uh, and so I got a coffee and had a couple bucks. I was like, I'll take a $2 scratcher ticket. And so I gave him my $2 scratcher ticket and I won like 20 bucks. I was like, that was awesome. Turn it into more scratcher tickets. And, and so he did. And I think on that one, I won like two bucks. And, and so I put that into another scratcher ticket and I lost everything. So I got out some more money and bought some more scratcher tickets and, and I sat there and I even, <laughs> Don't judge me. I even hit that point. I had a special place in my wallet where my tithe went. <laughs> and I even got to the point where I lost everything. I'd gone out. I dug through my truck for change. And so I went and I, and I put my tithe down for some scratcher tickets. And, and I won like 50 bucks with my tithe. And so I, uh, no, no, no. I won like 20 bucks with my tithe. And so, um, and so I, I wanted to, I'm like 20 bucks up. I want to put my tie back. I want to put my 20 bucks back. Leave it alone. I couldn't do it. Went back. I bought more scratcher tickets. <laughs> and so, uh, so the, um, and the person, the, the cashier was like a salesman. They were like, we just put this roll in there. And they said every single roll has a $50 winner in it. And so I'm looking at this roll like, I'm going to hit the 50 I know I'm going to do it. So I, I, uh, I, uh, put everything back down. I get the scratcher tickets. I lose everything. I borrowed like 25 cents from a friend, plus all the change I could dig out of the seat of my truck. I bought one more scatcher ticket, and I won the, the 50 bucks. I had enough to put my tithe back, pay my buddy his quarterback, and basically leave with the exact same amount of money I came in with. <laughs> I think I got my coffee paid for. It, by the time we spread it all out, I'd spent like $115 on scratcher tickets, you know, just to walk out 100% even. Um, so... I don't know why I told that story. <laughs> Meaningless. But at least this guy didn't buy scratcher tickets with the master's money. He wanted to keep it safe. He played it safe. The guy took his master's character seriously and played it safe. Maybe not the best move, but not like outer darkness, like wrong, right? Doesn't this feel a little harsh? Let's see if we can unpack it a little bit. First, this parable is a parable, which means it uses hyperbole. It uses hyperbolic language as part of the literary genre. Um, I personally believe the outer darkness threat in this passage is to add a spooky severity to it. I don't think this is, uh, this is Jesus saying, if you do this, you'll literally go to hell. Um, Otherwise, that would make some of our other theologies around salvation very weird. Like, it would make it very complex. I don't think this is a literal theological threat of hell. I think he's just talking about how he's trying to add severity to this moment. But even if it is a literal picture of the second coming of Jesus, there's obviously a dire warning that we need to understand. And I believe it bears heavily on our current study. Remember when we talked about and kind of unpacked Moses' offer of life in the Torah? Um, it said, uh, if you do this, you will live and multiply and the Lord, your God will bless you in the land you're about to uh, enter and occupy. We talked about how Moses was offering fruitfulness when he said, you're going to have life and you're going to multiply and you're going to have blessing. The word multiply can, can be translated increase it several times in the scripture. The word blessing can be translated wholeness or healing. In the scripture, it says that Moses is saying, if you obey the Torah, you'll be able to take your five bags of silver and make five more. You're going to have fruitfulness and increase. And remember, as Moses was offering this kind of choice the, between this life that he was 
trying to describe to them and, and this death or, or curses. He was hearkening back to an even earlier story where life and death was at stake. Back in the garden when God put the tree of life next to the tree that brings death, he put man and woman in that same garden and said, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the animals that scurry on the ground. Be fruitful and multiply, increase. We call this the cultural mandate. Theologians call this, this, uh, this passage, this verse, the cultural mandate. It's the earliest command that God gave humans. If, uh, if there had never been sin, um, the world never suffered the consequences of death, this would still be our job. Because this was given to us before we messed everything up. To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to govern it. This includes reproduction. And boy, have I tried to take that one seriously. (laughs) But this is more than just reproduction. This is a command to create culture. To govern and manage and structure the earth. To bring order out of chaos. I don't believe that if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, we'd all just be living in the garden picking fruit all day. I don't think that's what would have happened. God said, now go and be fruitful. Go and create. Go and make. From day one, God gave humans a bag of silver and said, go, multiply it. Invest, grow, be fruitful with it. T.D. Jake says something I love. He said, God never made a chair. God never made a table. God made a tree. He said, now you go and make and create. So when Jesus tells a story about these three servants and this weird investment that the master makes, and all the expectations that come with that, what Jesus is doing is he's tapping into this deep, fundamental human drive to be fruitful. It's been there since day one to progress, to grow something. God commanded the very first humans to do that. Moses in the, in, in the Torah tells the Israelites to do that. If you'll obey this, you'll go and be fruitful. You'll fulfill that, that thing that God put in you in the very beginning. And Jesus tells this parable about three servants, two of whom got it and one who didn't. And we have a tendency to read this parable as if Jesus is the master and he gives each one some talents and we're going to answer for those when he gets back. And as I said, parables have some leeway. We can interpret them. But Jewish commentators read this differently. They read this as though uh, this is the cultural mandate. That what Jesus is doing is he's saying, uh, God gave you the Torah. He called you. He gave you bags of silver. And then comes his son. And he's like, the Gentiles are going nuts with theirs. They've spread all over the place. They're advancing their culture all over the place. And, and you've buried it. You're so consumed with holding on to the way it was when Moses gave it that you're not growing it. You're not advancing it. You're not, you're not investing it. In the world. We look at it as Jesus gives us something and we're going to answer for it in the second coming. The Jews feel like God already gave them something. 
Jesus came back to say, what have you done? What have you done? So afraid you're going to mess up that you're tirelessly hanging on to what you have rather than going out into the world and, and growing it, multiplying it. But however we read this parable, kind of eschatologically, in other words, where it falls in time and, and whether it's a prophecy of the end times or however you read it, we were not created to be stagnant. Or even to be static. We were created for movement, for dynamics. The second law of thermodynamics, also called the law of entropy, if you want to jot this down so you can sound smart with your friends later, um, basically says in a nutshell, left to itself, things tend to fall apart. It's actually way smarter than that because they found a way to figure out exactly what happens to the energy and how it dissipates. But I like the nutshell version. Left to itself, things fall apart. If you park a truck in the middle of a field, you don't come back next year and it looks nicer. It, it doesn't get shinier. It doesn't, it's not in better shape than it was. If you leave it alone, it falls apart always. It's a universal, they call it the law of thermodynamics. Things don't, things take, order takes effort. Order takes effort. Organization requires energy. I pretty much ignored like my health and diet for pretty much all of 2020. And when 2021 started, I did not have a six-pack. It just didn't happen. I thought, if I leave it alone, it'll just... No, that is not how things work. Left alone, things fall apart. It takes effort to create order. So when God put the first humans on the planet, He put them there to grow the world, to govern it. To, to, to create order, to do something with it. And that was going to require investment and energy. If you bury it in the ground, it goes backwards. It doesn't just sit in the ground. Now, we're supposed to be talking about this relationship with the self, our, 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 the shame that we all seem to carry. We're supposed to be talking about how living a resurrected life changes how we see ourselves, especially how we experience and overcome shame. Except as we read this parable about investing, and it draws us back to this earlier command to advance culture, this starts to feel more like healing in our vocation. Like, like God gave you something to do and, and you have to redeem that. And which is definitely part of it. I don't know if you remember last week that we were trying to deal with our relationship with God and, and healing our relationship with God uh, and, and how Jesus uses this father reuniting with his son and how that immediately created tension with the other brother and how somehow this relationship with the father affected the relationship with the son like they were linked. And we talked about how to a Pharisee this takes you back to Ezekiel and he sees these dry bones and this amazing resurrection and immediately on the heels of that he says, now, write your name on one piece of wood and write the person you can't stand on the other piece of wood and stick them together because that's part of it too. And we, and we know that Jesus, when he was asked what's the most important commandment, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And then immediately he goes, oh, but there's another one just as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you can't really separate the relationship we have between God and the relationship we have with other people. They come together. I think it's actually the same way in this relationship we have with ourselves 
and the relationship we have with what we do, our vocation. And here's why. I don't think the way we conquer shame is self-confidence. I don't think it works. I don't think the way we deal with shame is by quoting affirmations. You are good enough and smart enough and doggone it, people like you. Any Gary Smalley fan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My people. Hashtag my people right there. I know this sound, and I know this sounds super counterintuitive, but I don't even think we overcome shame by believing what God says about us. I might change that later. I might need more time to think about that. But I don't even think that works. I would submit today that the way out of shame is purpose. Is purpose. Generically, as humans, we were made for a purpose. If nothing had gone wrong in the human community, you would still have purpose. To move things away from chaos and toward fruitfulness and order. To govern under God's leadership the world God has given you. And I believe that purpose is linked to shame. It's kind of like uh, if I told you to close your eyes and, and, and not think about a pink elephant... What's the first thing to pop into your head? Yeah. Sitting around and trying to get rid of shame by thinking, I'm going to get rid of shame. I'm not going to think about, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, I'm not, I do not feel shame, does not get rid of shame. It doesn't work. And we take our, but when we take our eyes off of ourselves for a while, and, and, and put our eyes on doing what we're made to do, and we fill ourselves with God's purpose, all of a sudden, we start to feel different about ourselves. I don't think this, that Jesus is tearing this, telling this parable as a threat, as if he's saying, invest your talents, or when I get back, I will punish you. I think, I think Jesus is telling us the, the importance of living with purpose. Jesus doesn't open this parable by saying, this is what's going to happen. He doesn't say that. In fact, the very next story he tells in Matthew 25, if you want to look me up to check it, it reads like this. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit down in his glorious throne. Uh, all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as, shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So in that story, he says, when the Son of Man comes back, this is what will happen. That's how a prophecy happens. Parables go differently. They start like this. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by a man uh, going on a long trip. He doesn't say this is, this is how it's going to work when I get back. He says this is what living in the kingdom of heaven is like. This is, kind of, this is a great story to kind of illustrate it. This is, this is what it's like. There's a major difference between this is what's going to happen and living in the kingdom of heaven feels a lot like this. What I honestly think Jesus is trying to get across in the parable of the talents, especially with the severity of outer darkness and gnashing of teeth, is Jesus is saying living without purpose is like hell. It's like hell. Burying your talents may feel safe, it may seem safe, but if that's not what you were made for, and you go that route, you're going to hate it. Because you were made for purpose. You might feel like you weren't given enough to really invest, but the alternative is entropy and hell. If you don't invest what you were given, it is a miserable existence, like outer darkness and gnashing of teeth. 
You might fear the consequences of getting it wrong. You might feel the stakes are too high. But you are a human being, which means you have a calling. And that purpose is wired deep in your guts, and ignoring it is devastating. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus told another parable where he says this, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it loses its flavor? Can it be made salty again? Can you imagine salting your salt so that it's salty? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. I've heard a thousand sermons on what salt does and how that relates to the Christian life. Salt's a preservative, and we're supposed to be a preservative for the culture, and salt adds flavor, and we're supposed to be flavored. You know, I've heard a lot of things like... But in its like rawest form, what this is saying is salt that doesn't act like salt is worthless. Like Salt with no purpose is thrown away. He follows that one up by saying, No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. No one lights a lamp and hides it. That is not its purpose. Now, we were made to bear God's image. Yes. We were made to follow Jesus. Yes. We were made to love God and love people. Yes. We all have kind of these, these purposes, gen- generic, I hate to use that word, purpose that we're given. But I believe part of you that, the part of you that feels shame, the part of you that doesn't always like who you are, especially the shame that comes from comparison, is attached to your specific purpose. And living for purpose is directly attached to resurrection life. In fact, watch how Paul ties this whole thing together in Ephesians 2. This is awesome. My wife, okay, i got to rat her out. So I write a message last night, finished it last night, and I, I sent it to her, and she reads it this morning and ripped it to shreds. And, and so when I got up this morning, I had to like rewrite my sermon because she doesn't usually do that. But I was like, it was, it was, she was so lit up about it. I was like, do you want to preach this morning? You can totally preach this. She wouldn't do it. Watch what Paul does here in Ephesians 2. If you want to read it along in your own Bible, you can. If not, I'll have it on the screen. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commands of the powers of the unseen world. He's a spirit at work in our hearts to those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By your very nature, you were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else was. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved you so much. And even though you were dead because of your sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Can you hear that resurrection language? That's what we're talking about, that resurrection language. You were dead. As dead as Ezekiel's valley of bones. And Jesus resurrected you and gave you life. Then he says this, For he raised you, he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us, blah, seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we were united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages, as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united in Christ Jesus. And then Paul quotes maybe one of my favorite verses, passages in the scripture. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. 
so no one can boast about it. And right after establishing that your salvation is a work of God's grace, he adds this, for you are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. So right here in this passage, rich with resurrection, you were dead and now you're alive. With us moving from from death, not like dead, dead, but like this death we've been living in that Adam and Eve handed down to this resurrection life because of the grace of God. This entire passage shifts to the why. Your purpose. God did all this. He brought you to life. He resurrected you so that you can do what he made you to do. You were dead and God resurrected you for a purpose that he's already created in you long ago. You want to hear the fun part? This is really cool. Last week we talked about how Ezekiel stood over the valley of dry bones and spoke to it and watched it raised from the dead. And then he immediately moved into that passage about the two boards. I'm going to take Judea and I'm going to take Samaria and I'm going to stick them together. And it's going to be uncomfortable, but you're going to be one people. Listen to what, what Paul does right after telling us that Jesus saved us by his grace for a purpose that we're supposed to live out. Then he says this, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it only affected their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant that God had made with them. You lived in the world without God and without hope. And now you have been united with Christ, Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near with Him by the blood of Christ. It's the same story. Resurrection and, and community come together. We're right back in Ezekiel 37 again. But in Ephesians, Paul looks at, at, uh, at the relationship to ourself and our purpose. You are a masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece, he says. How dare you cover that up with a fig leaf? How dare you hide that? Why would you feel uncomfortable in your own skin? You are a masterpiece. And then, boom, he attaches that to your purpose. God planned for you things to do and and stuff to do. Since before you were born, he had it planned for you. If you like affirmations, if you're the kind of person who looks in the mirror, anybody do that? Look in the mirror and give yourself affirmations. It's not a bad habit. Try it. I can't do it. I don't like looking at myself in the mirror. But I can promise you, if you stand in front of the mirror for three days and you just say, you are a masterpiece. You're a masterpiece. You're a work of art. See what happens. And then spend three days going, you're a masterpiece. You have a purpose. I guarantee you'll feel something different in your soul. Having a purpose speaks to our soul. I honestly believe we're wired for it. From the beginning, humans have been wired for purpose. Before we sinned, before anything got messed up, before death entered the story, we were wired for purpose. Our soul is crying out for a purpose. So how do we respond to this? 
I know you've probably heard me tell this story before, but when we decided um, to plant Open Table Community Church, we did it because I feel like we had to. Um, we were at a church that we had attended um, before planting Open Table Community Church for about five years, and, and I had no purpose there, really. It was comfortable enough. There was plenty of kind of mental engagement and things to think about, people to debate with, and, and uh, we had some good relationships there, but I had no real purpose. And, uh, and that's when I was meeting one day, um, with our realtors. We were looking for our ne- next flip house and, and, and one of the people there was having a rough day. And, and I could see it and I was like, yeah, right. And something looks like it's bugging you. And she started to kind of dump what was going on in her world. And I kicked into pastor mode. And, uh, I spent about 45 minutes preaching to this poor girl. Kind of went overload pastor mode. And, um, just pouring into her all the encouragement and, and giving, trying to give her hope. And, and, uh, and after the lunch, Esther, out of nowhere, said, I think it's time to start the church. And I was like, left field, you know. I'd wanted to for years, but it had never worked out. Something about seeing me in that element reminded Esther of what I was like when I had purpose. And in her words, I was, I was dying. Slowly, but dying, which I thought was a little melodramatic, but <laughs> whatever. But here's the deal. If you spend much time with me, you are eventually going to ask the question, how in the world is this guy my pastor? Like, that question will eventually cross your mind. It will. I can promise you, I will push you to the point that you're going to go, I can't believe... <laughs> there it is. That's what I get for asking for amens. I'm not the pastor here because I'm a better Christian. I'm not even a great example to follow a lot of times. I don't have all my stuff together. In fact, I really didn't want to say stuff. But I didn't know if I could go that far. the only reason I am here is because some people saw a purpose in me even when I didn't and when I was first approached I said no somebody was like hey what do you think about planting a church in this area I said no not because I didn't want to but because I was afraid I'd wanted to plant for so long and it was disappointing every time it didn't work out and I'd helped other people plant several churches and and I'd, I'd buried the dream. It was in the earth. Now here were people going, hey, why don't you dig that thing up and let's see what we can do with it. Invest it. I, I thought I was playing it safe. What I was really doing was living in torment. I was dying. I was in outer darkness. I was in today's parable with, with, with what I had buried in the ground. My silver was buried. My salt was flavorless. My light was under the bed. Whatever metaphor you're most comfortable with, to me it felt like outer darkness. One of the core values here at Open Table Community Church is we're trying to help heal that broken relationship with the self. And I honestly believe that means finding and identifying your purpose. 
Honestly, we haven't had much time to dig into that yet between moving building, moving places and, and uh, COVID and all that. But we're leaning into that. We're trying to, to craft language and, and, and structure to figure out how we're going to, to invest in people and find their purpose. Because you were not created to live and die and never know why. It's not what you were made for. You were made for a purpose. Jesus died for you because he loves you. He didn't ask, you didn't ask him to do that. He did that out of his sheer grace. Jesus rose from the dead and defeated death on your behalf so to assure you eternal life. Again, you did nothing to deserve that. Just Jesus' love for you. But Jesus didn't do all that just so you could set your life on cruise control and go to heaven when you die when it's all over. If heaven was the real goal, we would just hold you under a little longer during baptism. <laughs> that is such a gruesome joke when you think about it. I've heard other pastors say it. I've said it before. Last night, for some reason, when I'm writing it, I'm picturing holding someone other way. Man, it's, that's dark. <laughs> this life is not a holding pattern for the next life. That's not what we're here for. You have a purpose today. I don't know if you noticed in, in today's parable, but the two who received the commendation were sent immediately back to work. The master, full of praise, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful handling a small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. This is not heaven. This is, this is get back to work. You did awesome with your purpose now. Do more. The goal is not to fulfill your purpose and then do nothing. The goal is to fulfill your purpose so you can fulfill more of your purpose so that you can fulfill more of your purpose. The way that I would love to respond to this message is to leave here today with a renewed and terrifying sense of purpose. Something you feel deeply compelled to chase. We would, that we would start to do some good in the world and see how that feels. See what that does to your soul. You're the type of people, person who likes to in, invite people to church? Start doing that. See what happens. Watching someone you brought get like plugged into relationships and grow is like an amazing feeling in your soul. If you're not that type of person, go to work and try to be the hugest blessing you can be at work. Just, just go to do good for people. Don't Bible thump them. But look for genuine ways that you can make their life better. And, and see if your soul doesn't resonate with that. Maybe find someone to disciple. Someone who's younger than you in the faith. Reach out to them and say, hey, let's have some coffee. Talk about what God's doing in your life. Try it and see, if it, see what it does to your soul. Maybe you're in a phase of life where you spend 90% of your time with your kids. That should be dripping with purpose. But if it doesn't feel that way, maybe play a game with with yourself. Spend one day seeing just how how much you can build up and make your child feel positive. And see what that does to your soul. Last night, my, my son Isaac's been struggling. He's... He's a lot like me, which is why he drives me crazy sometimes. 
gets frustrated and that comes out all over everybody. I've been hard on him lately. And last night with this boiling in my soul, I call him into my room. And I said, you know, buddy, I'm, I know I'm hard on you. I know it's, I know sometimes it's frustrating. I was like, I only do that because I know God has an amazing call on your life. I want so bad to see that happen. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm hard on you just because you are so full of amazing potential. His countenance completely changed. But when he walked out of my room, I don't know what total impact it had on him. Something in my soul said, that's what I'm made for. There's no shame in that moment. When you tap into your purpose and you're doing what God made you to do, it's like resurrecting something that's dead. You can bury it. You can bury it in the ground. And it'll be like hell. When you bring that thing up and you invest it and you put it where it's supposed to be, it's like resurrection. For you to tap into the type of purpose that will satisfy your soul to the point that you don't feel that deep shame. It'll be scary. It's terrifying. The thing that jumped out at me most in this parable was how emotional it is. Not only does the master seem really disappointed and angry, which always makes me uncomfortable, but the third servant is terrified. He said, I was afraid I would lose your money. So I hit it in the ground. I was afraid. Your purpose should scare you. It should terrify you, honestly. <laughs> this sounds terrible, but if you're comfortable, your treasure is probably buried. If you're coasting and things are good, your treasure is probably buried. It may feel like the safe move, but it's the road to hell. Not like burning real hell. Don't make it weird. But a meaningless life feels like hell. My real prayer for us, open table, is that we would stand with Ezekiel in that valley of death and start to speak life to those parts of your soul They would begin to rattle. And we would continue to speak until we watch muscle and sinew and flesh and skin grow on those 
death that's in us until, until it's alive and marching and full of purpose. Changing the world. Let's go to the table.